2015 was a year of advancing our community's healthcare through research and discovery. But what research and what did we discover? On this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio, we've prepared a special 2015 Year in Review show. For the next 30 minutes, we invite you to join us in looking back at some of the important health topics and medical research we explored throughout 2015. And later, we'll give you a look ahead at what's to come in 2016. You'll find it all here next on CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to this special Year in Review edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your new host, Brian Belmer. I'm excited and honored to spend the next half hour with you. And I look forward to learning and growing with you today and through each show we bring you throughout 2016. Before we take a look back at 2015 and some of the topics, guests, and information we shared, let me tell you a little bit about CTSI to serve as a review if you're one of our regular listeners and for the benefit of those who are joining us for the very first time. The Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeastern Wisconsin, or CTSI, is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, the Medical College of Wisconsin, plus Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, the Zablocki VA Medical Center, and Blood Center of Wisconsin. The goal is working in collaborative effort across all institutions to advance biomedical research and to find new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more cost-effective than ever. In short, the CTSI is focused on community-centered health research and improvement. Best of all, the CTSI is working for you and with you. Now, we begin our year back in January with an edition focusing on type 2 diabetes and the important role good nutrition plays in dealing with or avoiding it. It was a timely show then, coming off the previous holiday season, and it's a timely topic to revisit as we prepare for another filled with all of those delicious, tempting treats of the holiday season. Locally, the incidence of type 2 diabetes, or the onset of it, affects 5 to 10% or more of our adult population. Moreover, 29 million Americans have diabetes, both type 1 and type 2. And while both types can be genetic, type 2 can be, and often is, caused by our chosen lifestyle, including what we eat. Earlier this year, we heard from Dr. Ann Albright, Director, Division of Diabetes Translation at Centers for Disease Control. Well, there's certainly a significantly huge problem of diabetes in our country, actually around the world. We now have uh, over 29 million people with diabetes. That's type 1 and type 2, and there are a few other forms of diabetes that are included in that number, but that's actually 9.3% percent of the U.S. population. So lots of people with diabetes and over the last couple of decades, we've been seeing a significant increase in the new cases of diabetes. So bottom line, diabetes is a very significant health problem for our country. So what lifestyle changes does the doctor recommend we make? in order to ward off the onset of type 2 diabetes. After all, there are some things we can't change, like our age 
or our family history. Those things, you're absolutely right. Those are not changeable, but things like your lifestyle, um, how physically active you are, um, paying attention to your uh, food intake, not easy. It's certainly not easy for everybody to do that, but, but those are things that can and should be done. She's absolutely right. It's not easy especially at this time of the year. With the holidays around the corner and all those tempting, ooey-gooey treats that this season brings to our tables. Well, I'm certainly not a doctor, but I can give you some advice anyway. Moderation, my friends. Once again, our thanks to Dr. Ann Albright, Director, Division of Diabetes Translation at the Centers for Disease Control, who joined us on the show earlier this year to talk about diabetes and, in particular, type 2 diabetes. We continue our special year in review edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. Back in March of this year, former Wisconsin Badgers football star Chris Borland shocked the sports world by announcing that he was retiring from the NFL at the age of just 24 and playing just one season of professional football. The reason his deep concern about the long-term effects of repetitive head trauma. In fact, the sports world and the military world have been completely rocked by concerns over concussions and traumatic brain injuries, both on and off the field. We spoke with Dr. Patrick Belgowan from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke to get his opinion on why these types of head injuries seem to be making headlines these days. We've started to develop an understanding that even mild traumatic brain injury can lead to long-term effects on people's health, including cognitive effects, so the way that they think and they remember. People who've had concussions or mild traumatic brain injuries have a higher incidence of depression and anxiety. And that affects their social being, their jobs, their school performance. We see this in athletes. The other aspect is with returning soldiers. There's a high rate of suicide, PTSD, and homelessness in the soldiers. And some of that seems to be related to the long-term effects of the traumatic brain injuries that, they, that they're exposed to. The veterans from the last two wars were exposed to a lot of blasts. The blast itself produces waves that go through your skull and shake your brain and contort your brain and have the same effect as a concussion. Also on the topic, we reached out to Dr. Michael McRae from the Medical College of Wisconsin, a leader in the field of traumatic brain injury, or TBI, research for over 20 years. Dr. McRae says it's no coincidence that the topic of concussions and traumatic brain injuries is at the forefront of community-centered health concerns. This is a topic that literally has gone from total obscurity to dining room household discussion in a matter of roughly a decade. Certainly, individuals on the street and, and in the general population have been sustaining traumatic brain injuries forever, as long as civilization has been around. Um, but this topic really was not on anybody's radar until uh, it made its way into sports and the military. So if we think about uh, the sports setting, really it was around the mid-1990s where some high-profile athletes started to come forward and expressing their concerns about uh, the, their perceived effects from, from concussion exposure. Uh, and then over the past uh, 10 years or more, uh, international conflicts and in our U.S. military service members involved. And, uh, and then, it, then it became a, a topic of great interest and concern inside the military. Um, and now those, those two 
uh, corners of the world, sports and and uh, Department of Defense have combined on a number of efforts in in hopes of advancing the science that would then provide a evidence-based approach to the diagnosis, assessment, management, and return to activity after traumatic brain injury. Dr. McCray also shared with us what exactly the effects of traumatic brain injury are that can delay and, in severe cases, deny someone's return to work or play. There's a spectrum of, of or a continuum of, of severity to moderate and, and severe forms of brain injury. And what we, what we know for certain is that the, the risk of long-term consequences from injury really are largely dependent on the acute severity. So, for instance, the individual who has 30 days of coma, broad evidence of, of structural brain damage on CAT scan or, or MRI is really at risk of, of long-term or, or permanent impairments resulting from their injury. At the other end of the continuum, as I mentioned, the person who uh, has a, a slight concussion at the family picnic usually has a complete recovery within a matter of days without any medical intervention whatsoever, and they return to work, they return to school, they return to athletics without problem. In the middle is a moderately severe grade of injury where there's a number of factors that can influence recovery and outcome. And then what we're learning more recently is the potential risks associated with repetitive injury, even milder forms that have a there could have a piling on effect. That's Dr. Michael McRae of the Medical College of Wisconsin from our show in March when we focused on concussions and traumatic brain injuries, part of the special year in review edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. As we continue our year in review, we'll reflect on what we learned about skin cancer and melanoma prevention, immunization awareness, Plus, we'll share information about how you can get involved in important clinical research right here in our community. It's all coming up next as CTSI Discovery Radio continues. CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. With winter upon us, isn't it nice to think back to the sunshine and warmer spring and summer weather we enjoyed earlier this year? <laughs> of course it is. But let's face it, with the long winters we have, we value our warm weather months. And whether you're a total sun worshiper who absolutely lives to be in the direct sunlight, or prefer to have it made in the shade like me, there are things you should know about the risks and even dangers of getting too much sun exposure. Earlier this year, in the month of May, we turned the spotlight on sunlight as we shared information on skin cancer and melanoma. 
how to prevent them, as well as the innovative therapies available to those needing treatment for these diseases. It's likely that most of us have heard of skin cancer and melanoma, but what exactly are they? We reached out to Dr. Frank Perna, Program Manager of the National Cancer Institute, to find out. Skin cancer is the most common form of cancer. However, there are several varieties, with melanoma being the least common, but also the most deadly. Dr. Perna told us that our community's top concern when it comes to skin cancer is prevention, because many forms of skin cancer are indeed preventable. First and foremost, people should be concerned uh, with prevention of skin cancer, um, because melanoma, uh, as well as the other skin cancers, is positively associated with uh, excess exposure to UV radiation uh, through the sun or through intentional tanning that might occur indoors or outdoors. Um, so we, we always want to get that message out that uh, wearing protective clothing, avoiding the sun, or seeking shade during peak sun hours, wearing sunglasses, uh, hats, uh, as well as the application of sunscreen is most important uh, form of prevention. But let's just say you do take preventative measures by limiting your exposure to the sun's potentially harmful UV rays, and despite your vigilance, you still have a concern about a mole or a spot on your skin. Well, there are recommendations for the, the ABC DE rule that applies to um, moles on the skin that you're looking for asymmetry. That is, um, does one half of the, the, the mole uh, or skin abnormality match the other half? Uh, is the border, that is, is it irregular? Often the edges are ragged or notched. Um, is the color uh, that is uneven or black or brown, um, they, they may be um, uneven coloring. The diameter, is there a change in the size? It's usually an increase. Um, melanomas can be tiny, but they tend to be larger uh, than about a quarter inch wide. Um, and then the last one is that evolving. That is, has the mole changed over the past few weeks or months? Um, so if, if you're concerned about that, that's something that you can have uh, examined by a, a medical professional. That's Dr. Frank Perna, Program Manager of the National Cancer Institute. Now, let's bring this to the local level, because there's potentially groundbreaking research happening right here in our community for the treatment of melanoma. In May, during Skin Cancer and Melanoma Awareness Month, we spoke with Dr. Sam Wong, a dermatologist and researcher at the Medical College of Wisconsin, about the Clinical and Translational Science Institute in supporting his team's research into the treatment of melanoma. Well, I think the Advancing uh, a Healthier Wisconsin Fund has been a really huge impact on our laboratory. They uh, funded our first efforts here, and they funded our work in uh, new approaches to treating melanoma. And I think that's a, a wonderful thing. And as we move further in the process, we first identified mechanisms, and now through our collaborators, Brian Volkman in the Department of Biochemistry here, he's actually developed a compound which will block a certain cellular receptor that we think helps protect cells from the effects of immunotherapy or chemotherapy. 
So uh, if we can disable that protective mechanism, then we can have a better chance of, of having that treatment be successful. And so uh, we've now identified the compound. Uh, we know it works in mouse models. And the next step is actually to take it to a human level. But you can't do it in thousands of patients at one time. I think the, the, uh, the CTUs, the clinical translational units, and uh, the small pilot collaborative projects in clinical research or clinical trials that the CTSI would provide would be ideal mechanisms for doing the first pilot trials in, in humans. This would be the first in human approach for this type of therapy. And Dr. Wong was quick to point out that receiving support and funding locally in a collaborative environment is a key component in his team's successful research. I'm very appreciative to the Medical College of Wisconsin. I mean, they actually, through the Cancer Center, uh, we've had funding through uh, the Medical College itself. They provide some of the startup funding to, to get the laboratory going when I first moved here from the NIH. Um, we also have significant funding, uh, and I, I'm very appreciative of the Anne's Hope Foundation. They are a local uh, research funding organization specifically uh, designed to foster research in melanoma. And uh, the two ladies who, um, uh, who head this group, uh, Anne Harrington and Anne Frenzel, have done a wonderful job over the last few years organizing uh, uh, walk runs in the zoo, for example. They have an annual melanoma walk run to raise funding for melanoma. And we've been able to benefit from that funding. And we've received well over $200,000 from that organization over the few years in order to support this type of work. Uh, as uh, many of us in the research field knows, the NIH is uh, a difficult place to get funding these days. And we need this kind of funding from community organizations uh, in order to to get the preliminary data necessary to generate a grant of sufficient quality to be able to compete successfully for those NIH dollars. And we're just at the point where we can start competing for those dollars. So what exactly is the research Dr. Wong and his team are doing to treat melanoma that will hopefully one day lead to a cure? Well, our work has focused on a particular family of uh, receptors called chemokine receptors. And we think that cancer cells use these chemokine receptors in part to uh, localize at metastatic sites. And so uh, metastasis is the leading killer of uh, individuals with cancer. When these cancer cells spread from the original site, say on the skin, to the lung or to the brain, when they develop these tumors in those areas, those are the the tumors that actually kill the patients. It's rarely the, the, the initial tumor on the arm or on the back that actually kills the patient. It's the metastases that do that. And so when these cells metastasize to these sites, they use the chemokine receptors to, to localize, to help find and stay and survive at those distant sites. And so our um, research has focused on blocking those receptors using unique molecules and molecules that are designed in the laboratory and then can be produced by E. coli and, and then re-injected into an animal or perhaps one day into humans in order to block those receptors. And when that happens, we've already shown in mice, in animal models, that when that happens, then the cancer cells are uh, more sensitive to the effects of immunotherapy or to chemotherapy. And we've published that work actually several years ago now. And we believe that the new generation of therapeutics that are targeted at melanoma, for example, they, they work. But uh, many of them lose efficacy 
or in some cases the cancer cells themselves can change in a way to make them uh, uh, invisible to the immune system. And so what we're hoping is by using these drugs at the same time you're delivering the immunotherapy or the chemotherapy, you are making the uh, cancer cells particularly sensitive to those agents and that you'll get better treatment, you'll get uh, more uh, shrinkage of the tumors, for example, at those uh, metastatic sites than you otherwise would and perhaps uh, prevent resistance to these medications. And so that's our goal and over the next few years and with the help of organizations like Anne's Hope, we hope to get that initial pilot data uh, uh, and I think the CTCI would actually provide some uh, uh, unique resources to be, allow us to be able to do that type of pilot clinical research. The CTSI is behind you, doctor, 100%. That's Dr. Sam Wong, dermatologist and researcher at Medical College of Wisconsin. Up next on CTSI Discovery Radio, our special year in review takes a look back to our edition from August. As the fall season was rapidly approaching a few months ago, for many people, thoughts turned to getting kids ready to go back to school. Perhaps some children needed an immunization before they went back in order to keep them healthy throughout the school year. But what about adults? Do our immunizations end once our school days end? Or should we be getting immunized throughout our lifetime, including our adult years? We looked at each of these questions and more as part of our show during National Immunization Awareness Month earlier this year. And we didn't have to look very far for answers as we turned to Dr. Rodney Willoughby, a pediatrician and renowned infectious disease specialist at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin. Now, we've all heard of vaccinations, right? In fact, we've all had them. But what exactly is a vaccine? Dr. Willoughby explains. So vaccines are um, usually some sort of a, either an activated or weakened uh, bacterium or virus that's used to stimulate immunity so that we can prevent the real disease from occurring in that patient. And we begin receiving vaccines as infants. Well, we start off uh, with uh, the first anti-cancer vaccine, which is against hepatitis B. Uh, then we get a variety of, uh, of uh, vaccines against uh, bacterial diseases that cause meningitis or whooping cough or things of the like. And then we start moving into diseases that you acquire later in childhood. Uh, and now there are actually a bunch of adult uh, vaccines as well. So there are vaccinations we need as adults. But wait, not so fast. We'll get to that in a moment. Because first, Dr. Willoughby told us about the importance of getting immunizations through our adolescence as well. Well, uh, they've developed what's called the adolescent platform, and that's to cover diseases which tend to be more common uh, after the, the early school head years, so when you hit high school, uh, essentially. So um, meningococcal disease, which is a fearsome infection, uh, is given at that time. Uh, you uh, boost again the pertussis and tetanus vaccines, uh, again, horrible diseases, and then uh, the HPV vaccine, which is a, the second anti cancer vaccine is given at that time. And finally, the immunizations that adults should be cognizant of. Well, uh, adults now, uh, again, they're recognizing that a lot of the whooping cough goes in adults. Tetanus continues to be an issue. Uh, there are pneumonia vaccines that are given to adults. Uh, and uh, the, there is also now a zoster vaccine, which is designed to prevent the, the late complication of chickenpox, uh, which is quite painful and, and embarrassing. That's a lot of immunizations throughout our lives. So how do we keep track of what we've had and what we still need? 
Dr. Willoughby has great news about that. Well, that's finally getting better. Before, you had to carry around the sheets of paper or try and figure out who your pediatrician was years ago. And for many of the vaccines, they may actually not last more than about 10 years, although some of ours uh, last as long as we've been able to measure. So it really varies by the vaccine. These days, uh, largely as a result of federal regulations, there are now vaccine registries, which are computerized and online, which are tremendously helpful at allowing us to figure out where the chinks in the armor for each individual is. But even though we know the importance of immunizations in keeping our community healthy, not everybody is getting immunized. Dr. Willoughby told us who and why. What has been notable, based upon the research, is there are actually two groups that don't get vaccinated. The first group are those that are most marginalized in society, the poorest, uh, and those groups it's usually an issue of b- being able to pay or having access to the vaccines, and uh, that really should never happen. The interesting second phenomenon is that there's a second group of vaccine-hesitant uh, families who are usually college-educated uh, and highly affluent and who choose not to Uh, for reasons which uh, aren't often fully developed, uh, but which uh, seems to be an enduring trend in the United States for the last uh, maybe 20 years. A lot of great and important information about immunizations, what they are, what we need, and when. We appreciate Dr. Rodney Willoughby, pediatrician and infectious disease specialist at Children's Hospital of Wisconsin for sharing his expertise and insight when he was a guest on our show back in August. Throughout 2016, the Clinical and Translational Science Institute at the Medical College of Wisconsin will remain dedicated to our mission of advancing healthcare through research and discovery in our community, including monthly editions of CTSI Discovery Radio. In partnering with the community, we're committed to bringing you important, valuable, and interesting information on each show. And, as in any healthy partnership, we hope you'll commit to sharing in the responsibility of medical research vital to our community. As part of our growth this year, Dr. Amit Godet and his team at CTSI launched a new clinical trial office at Frederick Hospital and the Medical College of Wisconsin, designed to assist area residents in finding information about and getting them involved in clinical research in our community. So recently we established a new clinical trials office at uh, Frederick and MCW uh, with two purposes. Uh, One purpose is to serve the research community here within the institution, and the other one, of course, is to serve the community outside in in the greater Milwaukee area. If you are interested in learning more about clinical research in our area, Dr. Goodet encourages you to contact the Clinical Trial Office. We actually have a very keen interest in what the community perceives research, and we really want the community to participate more in clinical research. Uh, If you know, 20% of all trials that are ever started never enroll a single patient, and that's why we are very interested. So our goal really is to make it easy uh, for the community to have access to these clinical trials. Uh, Now, we propose to do that through one of the three mechanisms that we have developed. Uh, First is we have established a new website. It's called Find a Clinical Trial, or FACT in short. Uh, What it does is is lists all the ongoing clinical trials at our institution in a very easy-to-understand layman language, if you may, uh, and we provide a direct number 
for contact in, in trials that people might be interested in participating. So that's one, one way of doing it. So you can actually go to cto.mcw.edu and you can find a link to a fact uh, on that website. The other mechanism we have established is for people who do not have ready access to internet services, uh, we have established a phone line. It's like a rec recruitment helpline, and the number is 414-805-1555. And anyone can call in on this number and express interest in whatever conditions they want, and we will be able to provide them with a list of trials and their corresponding uh, contact numbers and it's then up to the participants to go and, you know, uh, enroll if they feel like or contact them for more information. Once again, if you wish to contact the Clinical Trial Office to find out about local clinical research, call them at 414-805-1555 or visit their website at cto.mcw.edu. And look for the link for Find a Clinical Trial or FACT. The CTSI encourages more people in the community to commit to participating in clinical research. As Dr. Godet points out, 20% of clinical trials never enroll a single participant. So as 2016 approaches, consider making involvement in community-centered clinical research your New Year's resolution. That's going to do it for this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. I hope you've enjoyed our special year in review for 2015, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us and listen each month throughout 2016 as we continue bringing you the latest information in advancing healthcare through research and discovery. The new year promises to bring changes and growth in translational research, as well as changes and growth for this show. In fact, I'm one of those changes, as I'll be your host of each program throughout 2016 and beyond. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of each month, so make an appointment on your calendar to join us for every episode, and that way, you're always up to date. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute and all of our affiliate institutions and members, this is Brian Belmer wishing you and your family a warm, blessed, and memorable holiday and a happy, healthy new year. For more information about research, your health, or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. And be sure to share your knowledge of the show and from the show with your family and friends. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, co-produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer. The show is engineered and co-produced by Tom Crawford in collaboration with WMSC Radio. Special thanks to CTSI's Dr. Amit Godet, Tracy Stodiker, and Dr. Reza Shakir.